0: Beautiful. Thank you. Okay, let's begin. Father, uh, thank you this morning for your word as a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We thank you that we have words of life first to us and then through us. God, speak through your word to us this morning. We pray. Uh, bless our evangelism today. Bless all that we do in you today. In your son's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we pray. We thank God for last night. We thank God for being here. It's great to be here in Houston, my first time. Um, very different environment. Um, at the same time, you know, it's the environment of God. It's the venue of God. I'm um, read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Paul is at the end of his life. And... Uh, it's always interesting to see what someone says at the end of their life because you, you get, they have that beautiful thing in life we call perspective you can look back and it's not necessarily a time of regret but you get this like in First Samuel 23 David kind of looks back, he has reflections a bit of Moses in Deuteronomy he has reflections, Joshua 24 Joshua has reflections there's this kind of looking over your life Eli, Eli actually, when you read his life, toward the end is, Samuel begins to rise as the man of God in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Eli has reflections. He kind of just says, like, towards the end of chapter 3, like, whatever is good to God, so it's okay. You know, he's not even regretful. He just understands the reality of God in his life. Paul is understanding the reality of God in his life, and that's a great perspective to have. The reality of God in my life, when things are good, when things are bad, when I've been good and I've been bad, there's always been God. But you don't always recognize God in the moment. You know, you're kind of like Genesis 28. You're kind of like uh, Jacob. God was in this place and I knew it not. The God's been in my life and I didn't pick it up. I didn't get it right away. This is Paul at the end of his life. He's roughly maybe 63, 65 years old. He's been serving God for over 20 years. Uh, he's got a key disciple. and He's got key disciples in Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's got guys that have been with him the guys that have left him like Demas, the guys that have betrayed him, guys that have disappointed him like John Mark. He's had, he's, had, he's had the full life, you could say. And really, he didn't serve God that long, but he had a full life. Paul served God for less than a quarter of a century and wrote a third of the Bible. It's just interesting, what in a short little life, it was compacted, concentrated. And I want to speak about that today, about my life with God. Um, In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this, and I'll just do verses 6 and 7. He says, for I am now ready to be offered. This is a little different than Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul seems to think that I could die right now, but I don't have to die right now. But if it would benefit the work of God, I'm okay to be offered. But it seems like God has gave me a witness that now is not my time. That's a scary thought. Imagine for a moment that it seemed like your time, but God said not yet. Could you trust God that maybe it's not your time? But here, it seems like he's got a bit of conviction. He's saying here that, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is it, which is kind of sobering. When God makes it clear to you, you're done. He's saying it, not the world and not you. God is saying this is it. And I like the fact that he's still hearing God's voice, number one, even when the news is bad. And number two, even when the news is ending, he's still hearing God's voice. And he says, well, I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is his hand. He does not use such strong language anywhere else in the Pauline epistles. He's saying, I'm ready, and the time is now. Which is a good verse that connects with that is Psalm 31:15. The psalmist says, my times are in God's hands. And in Psalm 90, I'm learning how to number my days, and how do I number my days? Because God is the one that's doing the counting. God numbers it. It's in his hands. And he says in verse 7, I have fought a good fight. I like the fact it doesn't say I fought a perfect fight. He says, I have finished my course, meaning I've walked in what's in front of me, not worrying about what someone else is doing. And that's a great thing to do in Christianity is love people to be focused on your call. 1 Thessalonians 4:16 and 17, serve the Lord, mind your business and study to be quiet. Sometimes we get so caught up in other people's lives that we forget to walk with God. We're so worried about whether someone else is walking with God. He said, I finished my course. And the, the my there is is implied in the grammar. It's not there in the original, but it's implied through the way he says it. He speaks it in a very personal way. And all the pronouns in this verse are personal. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. And I have kept the faith. It almost sounds proud, but actually what it is, is perspective. So having said that, um, he's, saying that um, he's saying that I've done these things. He's speaking about the perspective of looking at his entire life. He's look backwards, and most of the time we look backwards, and the first thing we do is what? We consider. The second thing we do is the, the filter or the measure that we consider governs whether we have regret or fond remembrance. Most of the time, when the is not the mind of God, it's regret. It's not, it's regret. But ministry, it seems like, it's brief. You know, so we talked about this last night. How do I survive in the ministry? Particularly through the pandemic. On the other side of the pandemic, who will I be as a Christian? How will I serve God? How will I survive? For many Christians, it seems like this is the end for them. They don't see, they can't calculate they can't perceive how they can serve God on the other side of the pandemic. Some of my brothers and sisters who were in missions cannot figure out how they'll do missions on the other side of this pandemic. Is our mission over because of the pandemic? I kind of saw that in 9-11. I was overseas when 9-11 happened in Uganda. And I remember going to Kampala, the capital city, and there's missionaries from different church groups and organizations were all huddled in Kampala waiting to hear from our different organizations. And just listening to them talk, many of them were like, I think we're done. This is it. You know, they, we don't, they just they were done. The, the, the event took their call. And I think because of the length of the pandemic in a different way, we're not gonna go back to the way we were as a as a as not just a country, as a planet. Everything's different. So when things are different, the first thing you think is that because they're different, I can't do what I do. So how do I survive? And I have to get we said it last night, I've got to get past what I'm trying to do because I won't be able to do what I've done the way I've done it. And I've got to get back to who I am and who I am. So I, I, I jotted this down. The average pastor lasts five years or less in this country. The average pastor. The average ministry lasts for three years or less. The average church lasts for 15 years or less. And the a, average believer lasts in a specific church for less than five years there's a lot of change. There's a lot of change. And change, one of the characteristics of change is that change doesn't ask permission. Change never asks, are you ready? It just kind of happens. So you just have to pivot with the change. And in ministry, there's going to be change in your ministry. That's why I always think about it like this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 2, we have a God of all comfort, but God never promised you comfortable. And, never, and I think sometimes we were talking about this I was talking to a missionary couple yesterday for breakfast, and I I said, you guys have a nice setup. Everything is comfortable. I'm thinking God's going to shake that up because he didn't call you to comfortable. He's a comfort to you when things are uncomfortable. So when you see yourself getting comfortable, the next word that follows comfort is complacency. You get complacent, and you lose your edge. Um, You lose your focus. Um, You lose your... You lose your mission. You get caught. And a lot of the church had got comfortable. We haven't had a major crisis in a long time in the church that was global. So we got comfortable. We got quiet. And then the pandemic came and wham. Our ministry in jeopardy because we're no longer comfortable. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to have this. There was a missionary in America who's not even American that spent 20 minutes in the missions office complaining to me about Oh, I can't believe they're making me wear a mask. I said, if you were in another country, we were in a mission field, and they told you you needed to have a passbook to be in town, or you had to get a yellow fever shot, or you had to do something to serve in the country, you would shut up and you would do that. Because you, you, you do what you need to do to serve God. You make the adjustment. You would do what's necessary, whatever it was. If they said you had to wear blue hats on Thursdays, you'd wear blue hats on Thursdays so you could preach the gospel. I became all things to all people that I might win some. You wouldn't be fighting for your rights as a missionary in the foreign field. You're comfortable. You're comfortable. So as soon as someone tells you what you need to do to operate in a society, short of taking the mark of the beast, you got an issue with it. You're comfortable. Whatever I need to do so I can preach the gospel, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to sit there and fight against, rage against the machine because I feel like you're taking my rights. What, what rights do I have? I have a ministry from God. We've been given a ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and Acts 20, 24. We've been given a ministry. You're not seeing the ministry, and when you don't see the ministry, you will be miserable. But when you see your ministry, you understand that that's big, uncomfortable It's part of that. Being asked to do something that you don't like to do is part of that. How many times have we been in countries... We stood in immigration lines for three days. They said, "We'll come back tomorrow." Well, we lost your file, and I, I can't stand in the country and complain about my rights. And you can't do that to me and shake my fist at the sky. You just keep it moving. You do what you got. Oh my God, we lost your luggage. Oh my God, thieves broken. Oh my God, we've canceled your visa. Oh my God, we lost your passport. And I never forget. I was in, um, beginning in Zimbabwe, and uh, you know, I, I consider myself to be a little bit experienced. I'm thinking, okay, you know what, I know what I'm doing. I get in there, and, I, I get, and the registration says to me, we're not registering churches right now. The guy who registers churches says, you have to join an organization. If you don't join this organization, you can't register a church. I go to the organization, oh, the, the head of the organization is on sabbatical for two years, so when he comes back, you can talk to him about registering the church. So I've got to wait two years. Yes, until then, you can't register your church, or you can't operate and at the time in South Africa, they were, spray, they were taking bug spray and spraying people in the face. They were worried about weird groups and cults starting. So they're not doing any new churches right now. So I'm, I'm walking from the, the, the organization's place. I'm whining and saying, God, you know what? This is ridiculous. I cannot believe this. The one man I need to talk to, I'm not gonna talk to for two years. But you, I know you're calling me to this place. I this, something's not right. I, I was angry. I was complaining and being bitter. And when it comes to complaining, as long as I complain to God, I'm good with it. You have a right to complain to God. I believe You have no right to complain. The Bible doesn't say that. It says you can complain to God. And sometimes I do. i like, God, I don't like this. I'm very honest with God. If I don't like it, I don't pretend to like it. Because that's the religious thing. I think God wants me to be more real than religious. So I, I can, I'm complaining to God. Then I went home. I remember walking through the fellowship hall and Pastor Viator is there. I remember this this. The room emptied out, it's just me and him. And I, I just kind of verbalized. I said, He said, How are things going? And I'm like, Horrible. And I started whining to him about everything that wasn't working. No one's working with me. I need to have seven nationals just won the Constitution. I don't even know seven nationals. How's that going to even happen? Uh, I can't register a church for two years. They claim I'm, we're, we're related to some church group just spraying bug spraying people's faces. I'm like, What are you talking about? Uh, I was like what are we uh, denied by association? Are you kidding me? So if, I'm just why he just looks at me and says, "What did you expect it was going to be?" This is how it always is, and I just and maybe I laughed a little bit. I just walked away. I said to myself, "That's right. It's always like this. It's always difficult. It's always hard. It's always look like you're not going to win. It always but you still have a ministry. You still have a ministry." So we've been given a ministry. It doesn't say we've been given a good ministry. It doesn't say we've been given a favor, a comfort. We've been given a ministry. So if it's uncomfortable, then it's uncomfortable. And if you've been in the ministry, you haven't been uncomfortable yet, I would question whether you're in the ministry. The ministry of God is never going to be comfortable in a, a, a natural demonic world. We're not supposed to be comfortable. This is not our home in Hebrews 11. In 1 Corinthians 15, So if it's not our home, the only place you're comfortable is your own house. I'm not comfortable in somebody else's house. I never have been. Even in a bed, I don't always sleep well. My bed. The one difference you can tell when I'm in my bed, I'm, I sleep longer because this is my bed. I'm comfortable. But God said, your comfort is in me.
1: Yeah.
0: Not in this world. In, how about this verse? John 16, 33, In this world, you shall have tribulation. That's a promise to the followers of God. He doesn't say you might. He says you will. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who serve God or follow God will suffer. It doesn't say discomfort, it says persecution. Hard words, but truthful words. And even in the humanity of our human condition, in Job chapter 14, verse 1, man born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. So what were you kind of a life were you expecting? Like, well, you know, since I joined the church, my life has been bad. And I'm guessing it was champagne and ice cream before you became a Christian, right? Yeah. Come on, really? Like, so many people scapegoat the church, right? You know, that church ruined my life. Well, how old are you? 41. How long were you in the church? Three years. So for 38 years, your life was perfect. And then the last three just went all to hell. Is that how it worked? The last three, we came in and crushed. We, we destroyed your childhood. We caused the parents to divorce. We brought in thieves. We, we were the ones who bullied you in high school. We did all of that? Or was that your life? And we're just a soft target for you. Because we allow you to dump all your, your problems and say the church did it. And we don't push back. Because God doesn't push back. But we've been given a ministry. And we we called by God to respond to it in Second Corinthians chapter four verse one to respond to it in Colossians chapter four seventeen to respond to the ministry of God and in the way in which we respond in Second Corinthians chapter six verse three we are careful that the ministry is not blamed because we find value in that ministry see but what's interesting is we find value in the ministry. Sometimes the ministry looks like in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5. We don't look sufficient for it, but we're giving it anyway. Basically, God doesn't give me something I'm sufficient for. He gives me things that I'm only sufficient for in him. I can't do it without him. God purposes to give me things that I can't do without him. If I can do it without him, he didn't give it. Why does it say in Job 23, 14? It says. He will perform the thing he's appointed me to do. We like that verse because we think, okay, God's going to do it. But the reason why he's going to do it is because we can't do it without him. It's by design. If I fail in ministry without God, it's by design. Because in the natural, I should not be able to perform the supernatural. It's by design it should be like that. And nevertheless, uh, uh, really insufficient, insufficient, unable, and yet God gives us the ministry. First Timothy 1.12, he puts us in the ministry. And then he says when he puts us in, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse six, he says, you're able. And why are you able? Because I am able. Colossians 3. I am able. I'm able. And in the ministry, because we're accountable, we're careful with it in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, we're also accountable to the ministry. We're accountable in the ministry. We're accountable in the ministry. We have a ministry. Yet, in spite of the fact that we have a ministry, many people quit the ministry. Many people walk away from the ministry. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's um, family. There's warfare. There's sin. There's failure. Sometimes marriage. They, they, they surveyed 3,000 pastors. I think it was the Barna Group. And they asked them, but what's the number one reason why you left ministry? 67% said their wife-related issues. Yeah. Wife-related issues. 67%. Not necessarily bad, just wife-related. She didn't want the call. She got sick. A variety of things. So the marriage is important. But many people quit the ministry. They quit the ministry. They can say in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 that they're addicted to the ministry, but many walk away from the ministry. And a great amount of Christians, particularly in the the Bible Belt, have left the ministry because of church abuse or just being abused in the body of Christ. The number one reason in this country people leave churches is because of interpersonal relational conflict on some level, or more specifically, unresolved conflict. The iron sharpening iron, actually the iron has been bruising the iron.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Proverbs 27 says they've been a bruising. Nobody beats the body like the body. Galatians 5.15, the biting and devouring. Yeah. We gnaw on each other. Never mind we have the devil, we have the world, and we have the flesh. We also have those that gnaw on each other. They're people that feed with their flesh on the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like um, one of the, the, the diseases called autoimmune disease, and there's several of them. Crohn's disease is one of them. And with autoimmune diseases, what happens is literally your immune system starts fighting you. Yeah. The way your immune system is designed, it treats, it starts fighting an, an infection that's not there. It literally attacks itself. Cancer is also like that. Cancer cells will morph, regular cells will mor- morph and become abnormal, and your body begins to attack itself. The great, A lot of the greatest diseases in the human body or when the human body turns against itself and the greatest disease in the church today is not the devil not evil and not sin but when the church turns on itself we turn on each other so when in the face of all of that as a christian how do i navigate the pandemic how do i navigate that environment how do i survive in the ministry i know i have a ministry i know i have a call but how do i survive with that how do i navigate how do i move with it how do i get through that how do I do that? You know? How do I do that? Um, and I, 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 I want to first talk about this word longevity. How do you... The word longevity speaks about survival. Lasting. Um, I want to I define a few things about that because there's some myths about longevity. The first myth is that as a Christian, you're, having a long ministry is not a guarantee from God. God has not promised you a long ministry. Many of you guys well, if I can serve God for a long period of time, um, then I, uh, I've served God. But you may not serve God for a long time. It's not a guarantee. I think about this. Paul, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet born among men, and his public ministry was nine months. Nine months. There's, a, there's several movements from John the Baptist that are based upon John the Baptist. Some of them even exist today. And he served God for nine months. The only prophet Christ says was the greatest born among women served God for nine months. He didn't say Isaiah. He didn't say Jeremiah. He just said John the Baptist. You might not serve God long. Christ's ministry was basically 42 months, give or take. Not long. Stephen didn't serve God long, really. Longevity is not a guarantee, it's not a guarantee. So that's the first thing I want to understand about this. It's not a guarantee. So don't run around thinking that if I don't, because I'm called by God and I have such an amazing portion, my portion may not be long. It may not be long. If it is, great, but it may not be. Number two, but the Bible does imply that longevity is a possibility. It could be. So don't assume, but well, I don't have much time. And you always hear this from the older Christians. Well, I met Jesus when I turned 40. Well, I got Jesus late. Paul got Jesus late. <laughs> 65% of Paul's life, he was not walking with God. It's, still, it's like Moses, it's that last quarter. For him. In Paul's case, the last 33%. In Moses' case, the last 33% were amazing. But the first 65 to 70% was rubbish. really. It wasn't that useful. So it, it's, a, it's, not, it's a possibility. You may serve, God. Abraham served for a long time. Of all the patriarchs, Samuel's life was so long. Isaac's life was so long. The promised seed was like, I think it was 145. His life was long. You might get a long life. You might serve God for a long time. I sometimes think about my life and in the humanity of who I am, I always think about my frailty where I didn't get it right and I didn't do it right. And then sometimes the Holy Spirit is saying, you've been doing this for a minute. You've been doing this for a while. You know, you're pre-millennial. I'm like, wow, okay. And then you're sitting in 221 and you start thinking, wow and you start seeing the people that you've discipled for 23 years and 17 years and 19 years and you begin to realize that god's been you haven't been paying attention but god's been doing it for a long time in your life you know you've been you've been numbering somebody wrote me an email the other day said i've been i'm going to add this to the list of things i disagree with you about pastor but i said well i don't have i don't have a list of things i disagree with you about i'm not keeping a record i'm kind of grieved that you are but we do that with our life. We have this record of our grievances with people and with situations. And over the years, I've been tallying up our disagreements and tallying up my failures. And God, with the song out there now it talks about, it's an kind of old noun, but God keeps no record of wrong. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, God has, one of the four books of the Bible is the book of remembrance. And in the book of remembrance, God writes down everything I've done in faith, not what I've done wrong. We said it yesterday. God's thoughts and my thoughts are so far. I'm tallying wrongs, and God is tallying faith. I'm adding failures, and God is adding moments of faith. Amen. And when you get to heaven, God's not going to roll out this long scroll and said, back in 1992, you lied, and then also, in the- oh, my God, 95 was a bad year. He just was itemizing your failures in 95. Now, he's going to roll out a book. It's in the book. It'll open the book. It's going to be your name, and God's going to show you in time, every time you walk by faith, because that's what matters to God. That's what your ministry is about, me walking by faith. So it's a possibility you might be long. It's a possibility. God might use you when you don't even know it. You, you count it as 35 years of misery and God's like, man, you've been faithful. You don't see that. It's amazing what God sees. Then the third thing I want to say about longevity is that it's not a necessity. First of all, we said it's not a guarantee. Number two, we said it's, but it is a possibility. And number three, we're saying it's not a necessity. I don't need to serve God for a long time. It might not be a sign of spiritual achievement. Joy, joy lasted a long time. Would you call that a sign of spiritual achievement? <laughs> really? I mean, Judas walked with Jesus Jesus as long as, as Peter did. Is that a sign of achievement? Eli had a long life, but it wasn't that valuable, to be honest with you. It, wasn't, it didn't have a lot of oomph to it. The Pharisees were around for a long time as an order, and God left it for a long time. Rebuked it, but didn't remove it. It's amazing. He he destroyed the works of the devil in one John three eight. He dealt with the sin of man in one Peter two twenty four, and he left the Pharisees there. He left the seed in the heart of men for legalism, and never touched it. Rebuked it in Matthew twenty three, but didn't remove it. Wow! And I like this: what God does. He doesn't remove the darkness; he lifts up the light. You read that in one John chapter one. The darkness the darkness is there. In Genesis chapter 1 and first and first and John chapter 1, and God doesn't take away the darkness. It says in both portions of scripture, the beginning of the New Testament and the beginning of the Old Testament, God just lifts up light. And in your life, God does not Remove the darkness that surrounds you. He just brings in the light. Psalm 119, verse 105. Psalm 119, verse 130. The entrance of his word gives light and gives understanding to the simple. He just brings in the light. And in Psalm 36, verse 9, in light, we get more light. We grow in light. So God, the, the darkness doesn't grow in its, in, its, in, its, in its quantity. God just increases the quality of our light, and it makes a difference in the darkness. So we have a ministry. We have a ministry, and it might not be long. It could be long, but the, real, the necessity is not as a sign of achievement. I've been serving God for this long. Pastor shalla tells a story. Years ago, he was door knocking, and there was a guy he met who was a former, I think he was a former Catholic um, member of clergy. And the guy comes up to the door and says, I've been serving God for so many years. And Pastor Shallow says, who's counting? Really, who's counting? Doesn't matter how long you serve. It's not, a, it's not a sign of spiritual achievement. And often in church we say, well, I've been a deacon for 17 years. I've been in the church for this long. Longevity is important, but it's not the benchmark. It's not the measurement. Heaven is not populated with people that have been saved the longest. Disaster thief on the cross. It's not populated that way. But we speak of longevity the way that Paul speaks about. It. He says it here in 2 Timothy 4 7. He says, I fought a good fight. And that's a testimony of the life. That his life of ministry. That's internal. And of internally, I have made positive volitional decisions to be active and prone and, and, and um, deliberate in my response towards the ministry. A good verse for that is 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Paul says, I've exercised myself towards godliness i exercise exercised myself. That word for gymnasium. I've exercised myself. I've spiritually moved in an active way. I've been disciplined and diligent towards the things of God. He says, I fought the good fight. That's the testimony of life of ministry. Then he says, I fought, finished my course. And that's the testimony of faithfulness to the ministry. That's external. So internal, I've been pursuing God and engaging God. But externally, I've been after God be after God, it's a beautiful thing in your life from day to day to be after God to be after the things of God, to have your life filled up with being after God, and not in a legalistic way, 2 Timothy 2.24 but in a but in a disciplined way in 1 Timothy 4.7, that that's a priority for me That's a priori- it's not. A, it, there's two things in my life that determine what's a priority, what's important and what's urgent what's important and what's urgent like salvation is urgent sanctification is important so I want to make sure I get the urgency. So the priority is the urgent. And that those two words can change in a day and in a moment. You might, you might be in the, in the body of Christ in a church meeting and the Holy Spirit puts somebody on your heart. Now, it's important that I minister to the body. It is urgent that I talk to that person right there. Like the woman at the well, Jesus said, I must needs go to Samaria. There was an urgency with that. The cross was urgent. Throughout his life, the cross was important. But in the fullness of time, Suddenly, when the time was right, it was urgent. Like having the Last Supper in John chapter 13 was urgent to Christ on the last night of his life. But it was important throughout his life. The words mattered to him, but it was important to his father's words. So it's important for me to understand what is urgent and what's important in my life. Sometimes when you're evangelizing, for instance, I'll knock on the door and I'll say, I'll say to myself, Okay, God, what's urgent to speak to this person and what's important? It's important that I give them the gospel, but there may not be capacity for that. They may have a different need. It's urgent that I minister to this person, and I'm here first yes. as a minister. Yes. And in my ministry, I can communicate the gospel verbally or through my life, but I want to be a minister because I'm 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, I'm an able minister. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, I'm an ambassador of God. So I want to make sure as an ambassador of God, what's urgent to God in the moment is urgent to me. And then that's what. And then, all, then in Psalm 17, verses two and three, I have sentences from the presence of God. And then in Psalm 68, verse 11, I can give the word of God. And then that becomes a difference in someone's life. It becomes power in John chapter one, verse 12. It becomes life in John six. It becomes hope in Colossians 27. It can build people in Ephesians chapter four and verse 29. If they're Christian, it they can build a body in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. So that's important. I can, I, the testimony of my faithfulness, he says to Paul said, I've been after it. I have been after it. That's why he talks so much to Timothy, like, watch my life, watch my life. Underneath everything he says in the pastoral epistles is Titus and Timothy. Watch my life, watch my life. And he got that from Christ because in Mark chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Christ comes to the disciples and he uncovers the greatest principle in discipleship today. The with principle the with principle. He says, come be with me. I'm not telling you where you're gonna go. I'm not telling you what you wanna do. I'm not telling you what I want you to do. And you're gonna have spiritual responsibility, but I want you with me, because with me you'll get identity. And then when I give you responsibility, you will go in the responsibility based on the identity that I give you. I give you, that's what happened to Eve and Adam in the garden. They lost identity. That's why God said, who told you? Who changed your identity? They looked at your, your, your ill responsibility and gave you a new identity. Who told you? Who changed what I said about you? But God, God Jesus Christ says to the disciples, be with me. And when you're with me, you discover how I see you, and you get a new identity, Peter. You're not the Harmatolos sinner in Luke chapter 5, but you're the man who heard from God in Matthew chapter 16. Isn't it amazing? You're talking about constant failure, and I'm talking about rhema in Matthew 16. And upon this rock, I'll build my church, and I'll come back for you because that's the identity that I know you as. I don't know you as a quitter. I know you as a preacher. I know you as a pastor. Go feed my sheep. I like what he says in John twenty one. He doesn't give her, doesn't give him the John eight counsel. Go and send them more. Doesn't give him that counsel. Instead of rehearsing his failure, he rehearses his call. He says, "Go and feed my sheep." That's so good. When you have somebody that's on the edge of being done, always rehearse their call. Their call to God. Their call to ministry. Their call to the Word. Rehearse their call. That revives them. That's the word in season. Don't rationalize their failure, or you've done worse, or you'll do better. Don't give them a, a works program of trying to improve themselves and not sinning, but rather give them hope. And that you can, God can still use you. God hasn't given up on you. You still have a call. Romans eleven twenty nine. the gifts and calling of God are without him changing his mind. You turn it back on. Because life can turn it off. So turn it back on. Don't shout at the darkness we said yesterday. Lift up the light. I thought the light. So he was faithful to the ministry externally. Then finally he says, I've kept the faith. And that's the testimony of the obedience in the ministry. To be obedient to your call. To be obedient to the word of God. To be obedient to doctrine. To be obedient to truth. To be obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit. To to listen to God. To hear and respond to what God is saying to you. The greatest skill you can learn in the teaching of the Bible is how to hear from God. If you go to Bible school and don't learn that lesson, you have missed the whole point of Bible school. If I can walk out of Bible school, a D-minus student, but I learn how to hear from God, I've won. If I come to church and the church is teaching me how to hear from God, I'm in the right house. I'm in the right house. Because everybody says they have words from God, but everybody doesn't teach you how to hear from God. That's a personal walk with God. That's a personal, I'm with God. I always say it this way. First you're walking before God. That's God consciousness. Then you're walking after God. And that's, that's the pursuit of God. And then you walk with God. When you're walking with God, that takes me beyond my Sunday morning. That gets me beyond my schedule and my daily devotional at 8 a.m. and my half an hour of prayer of the day. It gets me into my day. It puts God in my life. And then in 1 Timothy 4, 7, I am exercising myself towards godliness. I am aggressively pursuing God. In Philippians 3, 14, I'm leaning forward in the plan of God. I'm I'm, I'm forward thinking in my spirituality, I'm not passive, I'm not being dragged by God, I'm being led by God. And many Christians would prefer to be dragged by God. God, I'm too weak, I don't have to do, God, please just drag me from call to call. And God says, I'm leading you. How do you get through the shadow of the valley of death? How do you get through that? God doesn't drag me through the valley. He leads me. First, he leads me beside still waters to calm me down. And then he leads me in a calm place. He leads me through the valley. Because when I'm panicking, I'm not good for the valley. I'm bad for the valley. <laughs> I'm, I holding, I'm looking around. I'm like a lot of Christians in that pandemic. I'm, I'm crazy. God says, shh. He leads you beside the still waters. You good? Okay, let's, let's go through this. It's not going to be quick. Okay? It's not going to be quick. It's going to hurt a little bit. You'll suffer. You'll lose some things, but you won't lose me, and you won't lose ultimately. I'll get you through.
1: Amen.
0: I'll get you through. I'll, on the other side. Like in Matthew chapter 3.17. On the other side of your faith, I'll do something supernatural. On the other side of your faith. Right. We talked about that um, in Luke chapter 2. God did three things with the angels. The angels did three things. God did three things to the shepherds. Number one, he sees the unnoticed we said for Christmas. Number two, Um, he chooses the unacceptable. Number three, he does the unexpected. God just kind of walks in and does the unexpected. On the other side of my faith is where victory is. On the other side of my faith is where I see fruit. On the other side of my faith is when I see the the fruition of God in my life from moment to moment and situation to situation. And then that's the song in Psalm 40 verse 3 that's a new song in my mouth. It's a song of (coughs) victory, not because of what God has done with someone else, but I have a personal song. God will give you your own song. With his words about your life, and you'll say, "Cause I was there and I did it." There are things that God has done in your life that you can't even verbalize. Yeah. But you know His hand. You said, "I don't know how that happened," and then you get humble because you realize, "I don't deserve that." I, I do. yeah. If I'm if I'm looking in my spiritual mirror, a jerk would say that he deserves that. No, and maybe in, in the beginning you used to be begin to think I earned it, but after a while you're like, "Nah," because. The closer you get to light, the, the more dark you see outside of the light. You're like, wow, okay, this is, I'm really this way. Yeah, and yet God still does it. I was talking to a, a person uh, in December, and it's their birthday, and they're on the floor on the ground crying. And they called me and said, I can't believe what God has done for me. I've been so bad this year. I've been horrible And God has just added and added and added. New job, new house. God's just been adding and adding and adding. And Pastor Nolan, you know how bad I've been. Why? And I said, you're getting the expression of the love of God right now. God decided to bless you in spite of you. Romans 2, 4, my favorite verse is, the goodness of God can be influential in my life. Just God being good to me can change my thinking. It says in the verse the goodness of God can bring me to repentance, but in the original it talks about changing my thoughts. God will use just his goodness to influence my thoughts. The world says God changed my thoughts with a stick. He threatens me to beat the heck out of me, and then because of the fear of the stick, I change, which is not how God institutes change. These are not the weapons of God. Intimidation is not the weapon of God. Indictment is not the weapon of God. These are natural weapons. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, our weapons of warfare are not natural. So in God, we don't win that way. In ministry, we don't win that way. And sometimes because we don't use natural techniques in the church, it looks like we don't win. But then God somehow weaves it together and we win in spite of weak methods. We have a weak method because we have a powerful God. The reason why a lot of people have to have a strong method is because behind their strong method is a weak God. That's why. But they don't want to say that. They believe, they kind of get like, we're strong because our God is strong. No, I'm not strong. I'm weak. And I'm comfortable being weak because in 2 Corinthians 12, in my weakness, I give God permission to be strong. Some guys don't want God to be strong because then he gets the glory. That's why Paul said, I glory. Notice how he uses that word in 2 Corinthians 12. I glory. Why? I glory in my weakness so that I can glory in his strength. But if I glory in my strength, then I'm glorying in the weakness of God. I make my God small. So, so surviving a longevity in the ministry. Paul says it here. There's a testimony about life of the ministry, my faithfulness to the ministry, and obedience in the ministry. And I jotted down a few things. Um, and I won't, go long, I won't dwell on them long, but a few, a few topics to th- rehearse in your mind. Because 2 Corinthians, oh, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, if I can say it. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1, Romans 15, 4 through 6, rehearsal is good for me. What you rehearse in your mind, you give existence for in your conscience. And the more you rehearse it, the bigger the resist the existence is. That's why some thoughts you cannot get out of your mind, because through rehearsal, you generate a connected thoughts to it, and now it takes a larger portion of your conscious mind. So when you want to create spiritual existence in your mind, rehearse the thoughts of God. Rehearse the thoughts of God. Change your meditation. Psalm 19, verse uh, 12, I believe, 14. Let the meditations of your heart rehearse God's mind. Don't memorize God's mind, Psalm 1, verse 2. Meditate on God's mind. Like I don't sit around and memorize Bible verses, but I do think about them a lot. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, you th- let the word of God dwell richly and you think about it. Let it well, here's what happens in Hebrews four twelve. It will begin to divide natural thoughts from spiritual thoughts. And then you'll have a capacity in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, to cast down vain imaginations. It's interesting that it talks about war in the mind, casting down vain imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself, watch this, against the knowledge of God. What God thinks about God, what God mm-hmm. thinks about you, and what God thinks about your world. Any thought, God has a specific mind about that. And any thought that's not God's mind is the wrong thought. And it could be good. But if it's not, if it, if it's not God's mind, it's diametrically opposed to God. There isn't like this space in your life that's not God, but not bad. There is this gray area in your life. Well, it's not. it's not God, but it ain't that bad. Like, people say, well, that's not sin. So I, I'll say, yeah, you leave it alone. That's true. But is it profitable? When you're a child, you do unprofitable things as a practice to eat dirt. We're opening that category. So you, you kind of like do a lot of foolish stuff. That's what First Corinthians 13 talks about. When I was a child, I acted like a child. But as an adult, I don't do things that are unprofitable as a practice right? You, you have to, that's when you look at the relationship. These are toxic relationships in my life. I'm going to end them because they're not profitable to me. That's why you find that your circle of life, the older you get, gets more narrow. Because you see, this, is, this person in my life for a long time it has been unprofitable for me. So I'm going I'm to block my conversation in Ephesians 4.29. Is it profitable? First Corinthians 10.23. All things are lawful, but are they profitable for me? I can have this kind of job. I can have this kind of thing. I can have a Netflix account, but is it profitable for me? It might not be sin, but is it profitable for me? Well, let's see. I'm in the Bible for 30 minutes a day. I'm on Netflix for seven hours a day. I think it's not profitable for me. <laughs> I got I to start looking at my life. you do the best friend. You look at your schedule and write down what gets the lion's share of your time, and it will shock you how much time you spend on things that are not profitable. And time is ticking, 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 ticking. You know? So having said that, I wrote down a few of these pro- principles about I'm gonna say this: longevity in ministry is not about time, but it includes time. It's more about being effective. I want to be effective in the kingdom of God. I want to have an effective ministry. Um, what does that mean? By whose standard? God's. By what measurement? The cross. By what value system? The plan of God. So I want to have that. So there's some things that I, want to, I want to have these principles in my heart because challenges will come in the body of Christ. People in the church can hurt me and they will. And I may hurt people and they will. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but also you can be offended. You shouldn't be in Psalm 119 165, but you can be in Matthew 18 6. You can be offended. And in John chapter 3, verse 2, you will offend. So you can offend, and you will be offended. Even though you shouldn't be, God says that like you shouldn't lie, but you will lie. (laughs) So it's there. In the frailty of who you are as an individual, in Psalm 103, verse 14, in your frailty, you will offend people in John 3, verse 2, even the church of God. And number two, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 to 8, you can offend, you will be offended. So if you're in the house of God, and you've been offended, walk into the club. It means you're human. Because the Holy Spirit does not prevent you from being hurt. That's your spirit-filled. But when you're not spirit-filled, there is no buffer between what is said to you and your identity. So when someone says something to you, they push the right button, they touch the wrong wound, you're offended. You misunderstand. It happens. So how do I handle all that? Number one, the first principle I want to talk about is the reality of your frailty, which is what I'm talking about. We're frail individuals. We're not strong, we're weak, we're temperamental, we forget easy, we learn slowly, um, we seek acceptance, we need affirmation. All this is part of our human condition. We said that in Job chapter 14 verse 1, um, we mentioned in Psalm 103 verse 14, uh, I think I mentioned last night, Romans seven twenty four with a body of sin and death, this is who we are. So sometimes when you see people do something stupid, you just kind of recognize, yeah, that's about right, <laughs> he's human. She's human. Yeah. I can't believe they lied. What were you expecting? Romans 3, 4 says all men are liars. Uh-huh. I can't believe they don't forgive me. Forgiveness is of God, so then I think it was God. Of course they didn't forgive you. Come on. What were you expecting? People come into the church and they expect perfection and they find people. Because there's no perfect pe- If the church is full of perfect people in their experience, the church is not present. We should be in the presence of God in First John 3, verse 2 so if you're looking for imperfection you don't have to come to church the world is imperfect the world is imperfect so understand the reality of frailty we are weak, we are frail um, who at times we do the wrong thing we say the wrong thing we make bad choices, we grow tired we get discouraged, we get weary it happens we get hungry, we get grouchy
1: mm.
0: Pastor Shallow wants to devotion the devotional and I, I cannot recall it I almost to say almost 25 years ago. on seven things to never judge a man of God for. Seven conditions. One of them was when he's tired. Another one was when he was sick. Another one's when he's had a major crisis. But there's like seven issues where you just kind of like, okay, he's a grown man. He's human. We need mercy on both sides of the pulpit. Both sides—it's got to balance on both sides. The character of God must exist, and it must be practically realistic on both sides of the pulpit. Or that's not an effective pulpit, because they present a standard that no one else can reach. I was so glad the day I saw my pastor had a flesh. I was like, "Thank God!"
1: <laughs> I, was,
0: I, I was celebrating this. I "Because he's human. Okay, I don't have to aspire to reach a level that I can't get to." Oh my God, he's got—he he makes mistakes. Yes. I said, good, that's not permission to make mistakes, but that's mercy for the reality. I said, okay, he's like me. So when I come to him with my mistakes, he can identify. But if he doesn't have, if, he, if he's on this pedestal, he's deity, he's God incarnate, he's the fourth member of the Trinity, if it's the quadrinity, when I look at that and say, uh, I, I can't touch it, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I get discouraged. I can't be that guy, I can't be like that guy. Oh, So when he says these things in the poem, you shouldn't do that. you're like, of course you can say that, because you're perfect, and all of us are dust. No, it doesn't work like that. No, I'm saying this thing to us as a standard that the, only the Holy Spirit can fulfill. God is the one that makes that a reality in my life. I take the word of God, I filter it through the cross, and I say, Holy Spirit, you apply that in my life, and I'm going to engage you, and moment by moment, God does it. And then, and then maybe, you know, maybe I'm taking jackrabbits and throwing them down the highway, and God's working in my life, and maybe I was throwing six jackrabbits, now I'm throwing three jackrabbits. Okay, not throwing so many rabbits down. Well, you know, I'm not throwing any rabbits down the highway. I'm a nice guy. I love animals now. But God's working in my life. We have, we have to give people permission None of you throw rabbits down the highway, of course. Yeah. But it takes time. We have to give people space for God to work in their life. We just have, we think it's like a computer. Okay, stop that. Input truth. Input, output obedience. It doesn't work like that. We don't grow like that. We grow slowly and inconsistently and we forget a lot and we get discouraged. We're needy. And our ego has a problem with that. So we try to fight... But there is a reality to our fealty. You know, misunderstandings occur. If you walk with God long enough, if you're in a church longer than six months, somebody will misunderstand you and you will misunderstand somebody. I promise you. And what are you going to do with that? The, one of the biggest problems in a church is that people, not the avoidance of sin, but how to handle it with God's mind. That's what's missing in today's church. We do both extremes. We ignore it or we hammer it. And neither one of them is God's mind. Again, we said yesterday in Isaiah 55 verse 8, Our thoughts and God's thoughts are still far away. That's why I need God's mind in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. I need God's mind to handle my conflicts in the church. I need God's mind to handle my frailty. I need God's mind to handle my fights. I need God's mind to handle that. Without God's mind, I'm incapacitated. I'm unqualified to handle my life without God's mind because my life without God's mind produces my life. My life with God's mind uncovers God's life. I need the Zoe because the bios is not going to work for me. See, it happens. Secondly, another principle about longevity in the ministry is the refreshment of friends. You need two good people in your life. You need a pastor. And I really believe today's church, because of the inconsistency of men in the office, they have just, either they overdeify the office or they undervalue the office. That's the extremes of man in John 13. We don't value it right. John, well, Ephesians 4.11 calls him an, a gift. He's a gift. What do you do with a gift? You use it. Well, we treat the pastor like the ugly tie on Father's Day. We kind of fold it away in the back and leave it there. Unless we have no other tie to away, then we grab it and put it on and laugh about it. But the pastor is a gift to me. He, 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 the, the, think about it like this. The Holy Spirit and the pastor are both gifts to me. Wow. Which one, I, it's amazing how I value one and I discard the other. But they're both gifts from God to me. For what purpose? Same as the word of God to help me grow. That's what it is. But there's two people I need in my life. I need a pastor, a godly pastor, and one good godly friend. I don't need 10 on this Facebook social media era. I've got 6 billion friends. I need one good friend. And I'd like to suggest to you that it may not be your spouse. Here's why it might not be your spouse. There's a high level of familiarity in marriage. So there's things that you could tell your spouse, but because of familiarity, you probably don't tell your spouse. Uh, I, I sometimes do counsel, women, um, marriage seminars, and I hear husbands like, I can tell my spouse anything. I'm not so sure I should tell my spouse everything. Pastor Charlotte once to say, if you ever want to ruin a relationship, tell them all your mind. First of all, you assume they have the capacity for all your mind. I never liked the way you made macaroni and cheese. You could have kept that to yourself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to let me have that
0: Like I'm telling you everything No, 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 not everything Because all communication is based on capacity So you should guard your heart What is edifying for my spouse What is encouraging for my spouse Or even instructional But not things that could be divisive Don't ever share all your mind with anybody Because half the time you don't think before you speak There's no filter You want God We say earlier Psalm 17, 2 and 3 Sentences from his presence That's why um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, let my words on the earth be few. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, I studied to be quiet. That's why even in the evil day, Amos chapter 3, I want to say verse 13, in the evil day, the prudent are silent. I don't want to be so wordy sometimes. When you're going through something, you don't want to be so wordy. Learn how to be quiet before God in a situation. People are not treating you well, things are not right. Don't be loquacious. The church sometimes, when we're supposed to talk about Jesus, where our mouths are shut, and when we should be quiet, we talk too much. It's amazing about that. So, um, refreshing of friends, it's good to have one good, godly friend in 1 Corinthians 16:18. And 2 Timothy 1:16. Um, there's a verse, I believe, is Philippians 2, 24 and 25. I think NASB, I think, brings this out. Paul talks about Timothy. And he says, there's nobody like him? That one good godly friend, does nobody like him? Of all the disciples that he had, he never says that Timothy is his best disciple. But he kind of describes Timothy like, that guy refreshes him. There's some guys when I'm not in a good place with God, I get around them, and I can have joy, I can have humor, I can have fun, I can be with them and not worry about what they think. But they can also be the kind of person, they can be the kind of friend that can grab me and say, what is this? Hey, come on. Let's get back to it. Let's refocus. One good godly friend. The refreshment of friends. See, friends in the ministry often provide joy, counsel, Help, love, correction, encouragement, protection, hospitality, comfort, fellowship. I can recall in Bible school there was two specific times that I thought about leaving the ministry. Two specific times that I was like, something had happened. Somebody in leadership did something that wasn't right. I was furious. I said, nope. I was angry. And a good godly friend pulled me aside and asked me two questions. that to this day, are my litmus test for leaving the ministry, the first question was, are you growing here? And I grumble, "Yeah. OK. How do you know you're going to grow somewhere else? I don't. Then why are you leaving? He didn't even try to correct the wrong. He left it as you, it was wrong. Yes, and. And God never promised you would grow in a perfect place. God promised you would grow in his place, in his place. In, in, in time, is not perfect. I, won't, I will not be comfortable. Sometimes it doesn't look right. But he called me to the place in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 21-24, I abide in that. I abide in the place where I've been called. A good godly friend saved me from leaving the ministry. Twice. Very important. Like Jonathan and David in 2 Samuel 23-16. and 16, Or, or um, you could say Epaphroditus and Paul. He talks about him in Philippians 2, actually. But a good, godly friend is important. That's how you survive, because sometimes you get caught up. You get caught up, and you, what's funny about your mind is you start cycling. You start putting things together that don't fit. Eight was nine, divided by six, multiplied by blue, bring in the green, subtract the, the t- polka dots.
1: Yes, he's
0: evil. You just create this thing, and where is it coming from? You're spiritually neurotic. You get out of touch with the reality. You're like, wait a minute. Huh? And then you, you, you tell it to someone, like, that, that's right. It doesn't look at you you're like, huh? No. How did you get there? How, they, all these machinations, and you, because your flesh just starts cycling issues, and you get worked up in your emotions. And by the way, when you're emotional, you should know your brain is not functional. <laughs> so you think, we actually have the myth that I can be hyper emotional and clearly thinking, and psychologically, this is you can't do it. One way to turn off your brain is let your emotions run wild. Highly emotional people can do irrational things, and this is why, not because they're irrational people, but the brain is not engaged. I was counseling a couple one time, and the wife said, I got so mad at my husband, I threw my phone in the toilet. I said, you threw your phone in the toilet mad at him. She goes, yeah, I know, it was stupid. I said, no, I just was not thinking. You got so emotionally worked out, you turned off your brain. And then he, and anything can happen. That's where all the rage and wrath comes from. Yes. And I drove the car over over his lawnmower and I burned all his clothes. Why would you do that? <laughs> I don't know. I was angry. Exactly. What you're trying to say is not that I was angry. I stopped thinking. Well, the husband said, I got mad at her and I started stomping around the house. screaming. What were you thinking? You weren't. That's what it was. You weren't thinking. But now you're calm. You can think it through. I always said, uh, I said this to one guy, I said, manage your anger. I'm not gonna tell you not to be angry, but control it. Never relinquish control of your emotions. First of all, when you get you see yourself working up toward getting angry, identify it. I'm angry, so why am I angry? Validate whether it's something you should be angry about. Like one time, I remember um, I got in an argument with my wife about something. And, and in the argument, I, I started laughing because she said, did you just blame me for the rain? I think you just blame. I should have told you that the rain was coming. I had no way of knowing, but he got worked up. It was like, I. I she blamed me for the rain. And sometimes, validate why you're angry.
1: Because
0: you might find that you're angry. and it's, not even, it's a stupid reason or it's not worth it. And yeah. when you get older, you, you kind of say like, nah, that guy took my parking spot. I'm not going to ram him with my car first thing but you gotta validate. So first of all, validate. Second thing about anger is, if, if you're gonna be angry and you decide that you're angry, okay, decide how long. Don't let the anger reign without expiration date. Because if you don't stop anger, anger just continues. And It is physically taxing. It's like right, it was never meant to be a permanent state for the human body. It's physically taxing. The cortisol levels drop when you get angry. They rise and drop like your sugar levels. You get like. Tense and psychologically, you get like stressed horribly. So, So, decide how long and then be angry. But when but honor your own word, be angry about this for a minute or about today. Then, to, when it's over, make it over. And when the memory comes back of why you're angry, just remind yourself I, I already said, I'm gonna be angry how long, and I've decided not to be angry anymore. Decide it. If you decide to be angry, you can decide not to be angry. If you don't decide to be angry, you have no power to decide not to be angry. So so anger just rages in your life. Before you don't, you walk into wrath. Then that's when you get into wrath. There is a a demonstrative expression of this wrath where you set a car on fire or, or like I was talking to somebody today and they got angry. I got mad and I just started hitting my head against the table 47 times. I'm so angry. I just I can't. I, I can't channel it because you, 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 it's going to explode. You have a breakdown of anger. It, it, then it becomes. A tr- then the event that made you angry, long-term, scary version, becomes a trigger to depression. Because depression is actually your. What do you think about depression? Is depression is actually your body? One of your body's defense mechanisms. It shuts down when it can't handle something. It's just a kit. A A trigger event. That something has happened, and I don't know how to process it, so it just powers down. Powers all the way down. It has long lasting effects. When that trigger comes back, it could be episodical, it could be seasonal, but it just keeps coming back. Body just couldn't handle it, just powered down. So, anyway, enough about anger. Back to uh, having refreshment of friends. I love, there are some people in the ministry, I don't care about their position, I don't care about who they are. I like being around them. And, I, and I'll, I'll call them, I'll reach out to them, I'll find them, I'll look forward to being with that those people or that person because they, they, they bring back joy in my ministry. They refresh me. Mm-hmm. I, I look forward and they're refreshed by me. And I will say this is not always reciprocal. There may be some people that you are a refreshment to them. When you come around, they're like, yeah. you didn't realize you had that effect on them. And then there's some folks that are like that with you and. Uh, you didn't know, it. I mean, they didn't know they were that way to you, but you get around them, and they're like, yeah, and I'm like, I'm so glad I'm here. We don't have to do anything. I'm just glad I'm with you in it. They're the kind of person you get me in a war and you're both laughing about it, you know? Ah, oh, they're, they're trying to kill us. Ah, oh, this is crazy. Oh. <laughs> anyway, next. I'll do three more and then we'll stop. This is already an hour. Wow. long. Mom. The revelation of him, never rehearse the revelation of Christ in your life. Colossians 3, verse 4, Christ who is our life. Colossians three eleven: Christ is all and in all. I just have to find him, but he's there. The battle is not to solve my problem. The battle is not to fight my enemy. The battle is to find Christ in whatever's happening in my life. And then I find him, he sorts everything. He sorts everything. I got it all wrong, I did it wrong, I said it wrong, but if I find Christ, I'm winning. Because that's what I'm after: finding him. The revelation of Christ, the revelation of Christ. Colossians 3.17, Colossians 3.23, I can serve in the name of God. I can can do anything because I found Christ in my service. My brother Lawrence, I I found Christ in my service. Now my service is unto God. Why do you think it says in a marriage, in Ephesians chapter 5, 21, Wives submit to your husband. This is the most powerful sentence in the entire chapter. This little phrase, as unto the Lord. Hmm. It's, it's not because she's a good wife or he's a good husband, but it's as unto the Lord. When I do that, I'm serving God. It doesn't say, well, submit to your husband because he's a good man. Or he's a provider. Or he's strong. Or he's bro-. No, it just says it's as unto the Lord. And then he talks about it again in, in Ephesians. Chapter uh, four, he talks about. Uh, let's see, he talks about the church and leadership. He talks about in chapter five, submit to your husband and wife. In chapter six, children. And he talks about it again in First Timothy chapter five and First Timothy chapter six, uh, to, your, to your boss, your master. But why do I submit to the pastor? Because he's perfect? No, it's as unto the Lord, Ephesians four eleven. As until he was given as a gift by God. I, I, my submission. It's based upon seeing God, not seeing the person. But if you see the person, you won't see God. And if you see the person, you won't even evangelize today. Because you'll qualify the people based on seeing them as opposed to seeing God's heart for them. When I find Christ and whatever I do, what I do has value and meaning and eternal importance. Finding him, see. Sometimes we get so caught up in the work of the ministry, we miss the source of the ministry. We miss the target. I've got to find Christ. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, talks about my eyes being opened. Because um, here's the mistake I can make. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 20, I can see all things and observe nothing. My verse always strikes me, Isaiah 42, 20, see everything and observing nothing. Matthew 13, 13, seeing I see not, hearing I hear not. We 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 pride ourselves on being very observational, but really the reason why God says don't live by sight is because our sight is bad. They've done psychological studies on how they've done eyewitnesses, the court, defense witnesses, and prosecutors rip apart eyewitnesses because the fact is they didn't see what they saw. Well, you know, I remember one guy said to me, "Yeah, Pastor, Ronaldo, you and Pastor Jabalani are the same height. Pastor Jabalani is 99 inches shorter than me." Um, and it's amazing how we can see things when we want to see things. Like case in point, I think it's 70% of your vision is peripheral. Like right now you can see about this much. And then your mind fills in everything else around you based on the memory of what it saw seconds or months ago. Like I'm looking at this door outside of the edges of maybe the edges of the doors. My peripheral vision stops here. Everything else my mind fills in based on what I've seen previously. I get a panoramic view of this room through memory. Memory is a huge component of sight because sight is so narrow, it's so short, it's so brief, it makes mistakes. We play that game, you walk in a room, how many eggs are in this room? And you have to think about it. Uh, four? You Because you didn't pick it. There's so many things you didn't pick up. So, revelation of him. Next. Renewal of the spirit. Renewal of the spirit. To be renewed in the spirit. Um, There's a verse I like in in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, King Saul has now failed. In chapter 13, King Saul did not wait for Samuel the prophet to come bless the troops. In verse 15, he did not kill Agag and wipe out the Amalekites when God told him. And actually, you could almost hear Saul... Samuel pleading with Saul, just do what he asks you, please. Because he realizes that at this point, I think Samuel's recognized this might be Saul's last chance to get it right. And he horribly fails it. If you've ever disciple people or worked with people, invested in people, that, ha- that scene happens a lot. You want God for someone so bad and they horribly miss it. You love, you like You're so hurt. You're more hurt for them than they are. Oh my god, no. Oh. And then in chapter 16, Samuel just goes back to the place of Ramah, place of the prophets. He goes back there. The Bible just has him. as quiet, despondent, He's just sitting there just grieving about the whole thing. And God, ha- when God has to come to you, you're pretty depressed. Samuel's depressed. That was his guy. Saul was the guy he picked. Saul was the guy he raised. Saul, he put, he dumped all of his life. In fact, in Samuel's eye, I wonder if he looked at Samuel, we looked at Saul the way that Eli looked at Samuel. He dumped his whole. Because remember, Saul, Samuel's children were not walking with God either. Sadly, he picked up that from Eli. Samuel, Samuel's kids were bad. So his first spiritual son, Saul. This was the guy who united Israel for the first time in a long time. Israel was functioning as a as a unit. They defeated the enemies of God. They were they had a bit of peace. And he just felt so short of the bark. He's grieving. And God comes to him and says, why are you, why are you so depressed? Yeah. He gave him perspective. He said, awesome statement. He said, I've already chosen somebody else. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. Horn speaks of strength. Oil speaks of the Holy Spirit. Be energized in your strength through the Spirit. I know physically you're depressed and you're crushed, But get your strength from God. Get engaged in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Galatians 5, 15 and 16. Get engaged in the Spirit and then go. Go in the Spirit. Fill your horn with oil and gold. Get up. I know you're hurt. Sometimes you have no strength. You've had that when you've been so crushed, you have no strength to pray. But if you engage the Holy Spirit in your finishedness, God will give you his words and his words become your worship. The words of God. Because you have nothing to say. You can't manufacture Sometimes God puts you that way because maybe in your worship it's been manufactured. have been manufacturing your worship for a while. So God crushes you so you have no ability to produce fake worship. So then God says, all you have is me. And then what comes out of your mouth is him. Psalm 72 and 3. It's just him. He fills your mouth. So um, renewal of the spirit. Then uh, I'll do two more. I've got Ten, but I'll do two more. Um, I would say, have a response of faith. Understand, this is all about faith. How do I survive the ministry? Remember how we got started. Faith. John one twelve. Faith. John three sixteen. Faith. Acts sixteen thirty one. Faith. All of Hebrews eleven. Faith. It's, I like to keep saying by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. So in other words, if you're wondering this, how this thing works, God's side of the equation looks like this. God will always and only be gracious to me. My side of the equation, I can always and only be towards him in faith. So my faith meets his grace, and my faith gives me access into his grace, in Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2. So my job is not to be gracious. My job is to be faithful, and that faith is what gets me into grace. How do I walk by grace? Walk by faith, and you you end up there. You got guys trying to catch grace without faith. We're in greater grace, so I guess that means this church wants me to walk by grace. No, if you walk by faith, you'll end up in grace. We haven't gotten away from walking by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, with faith people. Everything we do is by faith. Discipleship is by faith. Evangelism is by faith. Church attendance is by faith. Prayer is by faith. Worship is by faith. Marriage is by faith. Parenting is by faith. Employment is by faith. We that's what separates us from the world. We're not better than the world. We're just different. And the difference, the number one difference of the church is that we're people that walk by faith. Where the definition came from for Christians, there was a followers of the way. We're walking in a way by faith. We didn't make the way. We've just engaged it by faith. That's all. by faith. Don't lose the element, respond in faith. Without faith there's no participation in the spirit of God. Without faith there's no participation in the love of God. Without faith there's no participation in the work of God. Without faith there's no participation in the character of God. Without faith I can do nothing. It says in John 15, five, without me I can do no- you can do nothing, Jesus said. So how do I do it? How do I, how do I get God in what I do? in fact that's the first initiation of God that I had before I cracked the Bible before I bend my knee it's faith the application of faith vertically and horizontally and in reverse order vertically first for a my, my vertical faith to drive my horizontal faith in situations and things that happen and finally rejoicing in the work of God you, if you can't find the joy of God in what you do you won't do it long I promise you you will not do it long. You won't. Um Philippians 4.4, 4, 1 Peter 1.18, um, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know what the when you worry, you know what the old English word is for worry? It means to strangle.
1: <laughs>
0: and when you worry, you feel strangled. You ever notice that? When you worry, you, you, your shoulders get tight, your neck gets tight, you feel tight, you walk tight, you just like. You feel restricted, don't you? Worry can constrict you like you're surrounded by a boa constrictor. To worry, to strangle. And when you're more you worry, the more strangled you feel. And to be honest with you, that's why you lash out in anxiety when you're worried. Because you're trying to get free. It's like the situation has grabbed you, held you so tight that you can't escape and you can't be free. And you're trying to do anything you can to break free. You make a lot of mistakes and hurt a lot of people, cause all because you're constricted. So when you get a church full of worried people, you have, like, this pandemic has been spewing out this infectious worry like crazy. Uh-huh. Well, I hate the news. You can watch the news and feel your blood pressure rise as the, as the weather comes on. You're, I didn't even got to the weather. they try to always end the news with a feel-good story. I can't even get that far. I'm done with the first highlight. The first, oh, over in Turkey, they shot 70, ah, I can't do it. Oh, I don't want to know that news because you sow fear in people's lives. And they reap worry and anxiety. And they sow fear by design to bring you back tomorrow so you can find out the newest update. Because we have a curiosity of fear. That's why we want to ride, do the scary thing. Not just the adrenaline rush. I'm drawn to it like a moth to the flame. Rejoicing in the work. That's not always happy, you know, but that's joyful. Psalm 16, verse 11 I can rest in the presence of God. I can rejoice in my relationship with God. I like how David says in 1 Samuel 23, he says, You know, God, you've been good to me. I haven't always gotten it right. Man, you've been good. And then there's a little tiny phrase I like, but not so with my family. My family's been a train wreck. Yeah. Hmm. David's family, after, after Bathsheba, David's family was more like a reality show. He, he was the Old Testament Kardashians. He was definitely that guy. His family was a train wreck. Like, oh, his cousin and brother and nephew, oh my God, they're, they're attack they oh, what's going on? And the cruise. He said, but now my family, God, you've been good. Man, you, you could hear David, like, older, reflecting now. He's just thinking back, like, man, God's been good. That's a good thing to rehearse, how good God is. Take a, take a moment out. Take 10 minutes out of your day. I like to do that. Take like 5 or 10 minutes out of your day. And I just reflect how God has brought me through. Like, wow. Man. It'll humble you. It can break you, actually. When you think about how God has been there again and again and again and again. And it's your personal testimony. It's not how faithful It's nice to know God was faithful to Moses. It's nice to know that God was faithful to Almighty. But God was faithful to me. I get a little selfish in my head. Remember, what did God do and then that gives me such power when I talk to people about God, because I have this personal history, like, yeah, God's been good. You go, let, me, let me tell you how good God's been. Sometimes when I hear yeah I just start to talk about God's I don't go grab verses, I grab experience, I mean, I use the Bible, but at the same time, I'm, like, I'm going to give you something tangible. This situation happened, God was good, and 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 God was good. Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God is influential in the lives of God was good and God was good. And it's not just a phrase in the church, but it's like history. Right? If you're gonna ever walk with God, you must be a Pastor Shout quote, you must be a student of the Bible and a student of history. Chiefly among that history, your history with God. Don't get caught up on all your regrets and your failures, but re- re- rehearse, learn how to rehearse the right part of your history. And you need the cross to do that. Whatever history in your life passes through the cross. It's history, you will remember. But if it's outside the cross, I don't remember that. I often think about Acts chapter 2. In John 21, Peter denies Jesus three times. And then he says in Acts chapter 2, you people denied Jesus. What? (laughs) I was at the campfire. I heard you deny him three times. You're calling me. He's either a hypocrite or he's got a memory through the cross. You guys deny And God was, wait a minute. Sometimes you have folks that will come and rehearse your, your failure with you. Don't, don't be around this people. Withdraw yourself. From such withdrawal in 1 Timothy chapter 6. From such withdrawal. So there's a few more here, but we'll stop here. This is an hour and 15 minutes. It's longer than I wanted, but I got going off on ministry. But I just want to encourage you that you will get through the pandemic. Not because of your strength. Because of the reality of God in your life, you have a ministry. You can have a ministry in this pandemic. God can use you. Don't don't sideline your call. Step up. We said it on New Year's Eve. The message hasn't changed. The ministry hasn't changed. Just your methods. In fact, the pandemic has helped us. It's given us methods we didn't have before. Who knew about Zoom? I mean, literally, there's a lot of things that the church does now we never put our hands in. Now we're ultra effective. We have much more things that we can do. Now, and like I said, I don't want to focus on the things that I can't do. I'm just going to, in fact, like when I'm in a country, I say, okay, well, we used to go door to door knocking in water. We can't now. Okay, we just do it a different way. We do it a different way, right? We'll tell you we, when on the mission field we had recipes, and so we need to have that ingredient. Well, they don't have this ingredient here. Okay, we substitute that. We just pivot and keep going. We don't sit there, oh, what going we'll we we'll do? That chicken, little the that is falling. The Christ is rising in our hearts, right? The days start rising in our hearts. So I just want to encourage you this morning, as we have a day together, that your ministry is not over. It's actually maturing. It's not ending. Christ in our life is there and he's real. And we have a ministry to God. And we said yesterday to know God and to make him known. Amen? Amen. 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 Good. Well, thank you. So...